and welcome to the third season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. On this episode, however, I'll be sharing some outtakes from various episodes. And since there's no guest, I wanted to take this moment to thank all of Scene to Song's listeners. I really enjoy making this podcast, and I'm glad others are enjoying it as well. I run Scene to Song on my own, and the main way it finds new listeners is from your recommending and sharing of the podcast. So thank you for your reviews, ratings, and spreading the word about Scene to Song. I've wanted to do this episode for a little while in which I just ha- uh, have these uh, outtakes from episodes that I uh, really wanted to keep in the episode, but for time and kind of just flow of episode, I wasn't able to keep them in, but um, they're here for you now. I have three uh, that I'm going to share with you and the first one is from our season three opener with Gregory Jacobs Roseman uh, talking about Jerry Herman and he told a story about when he went to see uh, La Cage a Faux. I'm glad that I get the opportunity to share that story in our discussion with you. I saw the revival in 2004, the day after Thanksgiving. And I went with my friend, uh, Ilana, and my parents. And um, uh, we, w- we witnessed on stage The Actor's Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the fourth or fifth preview. And it was starring, um, uh, who was it starring? Uh, Daniel Davis and Gary Beach. And um, in the middle of um, the duet with You on My Arm between mm-hmm. the two of them, um, Gary Beach stops the, stops the show. He says, stop, stop, stop. And he goes down to the orchestra. Stop, 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 stop. And I'm thinking this is part of the show. I'm thinking, like, he's going yeah. go, to go into some monologue about, I love this man so much or whatever. Right, right. But he, no, he turns out to the audience. He's like, I have a bad throat. We're going to stop the show for a little bit, and then the understudy will come on. Huh. And, Gar- and then he just walks off. And Gary Beach doesn't drop character as Alban. He's just like, mm, okay, and just flutters off. The house lights come up. Sage manager over the God mic is like, uh, we're in a hold. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody is like, what, what, what is happening? Yeah. Harvey Firestein walks on stage uh. with a microphone. He's like, um, we're having some trouble. So uh, they're going to bring on the understudy, but for a few minutes I'll answer some audience questions. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the, the curtain is fluttering behind him. He's like, they're rehearsing the dances back there. The understudy has never done the part. It's a good thing he ran lines with his roommate last night. <laughs> um, so after a few minutes of very awkward, tense theater, Harvey uh, is like, are they ready? Okay, they're ready. And then he walks off and they, and uh, no, no, he doesn't walk off. Uh, Gary Beach walks back on and he goes, do you want to tell them who my new husband is? And uh, it was an actor by the name of um, uh, John Hilner. And uh, it was his first time ever doing it. He had never, yeah. he had never actually, because usually time, most of the time understudies don't rehearse until after previews. Hmm. Um, and uh, he was great. Yeah. He, he hit all his marks. During the best of times is now, it was very clear that they had to like move him around the stage. Because there's that point where they like linked arms and yeah. like walked around. They were like, okay, we're going this way now. We're going this <laughs> way now. And then uh, at curtain call, everybody rose to the feet 
rose to their feet for him because he that like that's that's the actor's nightmare yeah. is to go on without any preparation. Right. And it's a good thing he ran his lines. Yeah. <laughs> and he was great. Wow. Um, so that was that was that that's one of two times I've been to a Broadway show where they've had to stop in the middle. Wow. Um, the other time was one of the performances of the prom I went to. They had technical difficulty mm. where a set piece wouldn't move. Yeah, um, I had it happen to me once yeah. uh, at uh, Noises Off with Patti LuPone, mm-hmm. and she came on. It was in between the acts, mm-hmm. but they were holding, and she came out, and she, like, sang, like, a little ditty for us, mm-hmm. and I just thought it was, like, the coolest thing. Nice. I was like, man, we should just stop every show. <laughs> and have and Patti LuPone come on. And have Patti LuPone come out, <laughs> or whoever. Just, like, have stop shows and have people come out and, like, entertain, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> you know. Um yeah, so that was fun. But yeah, I yeah. Uh, I was I do like when that happens. Right. I, you know, it was funny because if you like if you, you go to school for theater or whatever, there's like this philosophy that like the show must go on no matter what. Mm-hmm. Like even if something is wrong. There's that Elaine Stritch story that she tells in At Liberty about like um, an actor, you know, Gonna, it's going to stab somebody. There's no knife on the table. Yeah. And it's like, I, and he grabs a jar of schmuckers and says, "I'm going to kill you with this poison jelly." <laughs> <laughs> Good actor, lousy props man. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I I guess I hope the Daniel Davis felt better. The next clip that I'm excited to share with you is a conversation I had during the uh, episode with Michael Boyd where we talked about inner city. And in this clip, uh, we talked about uh, a lot of things, one of them being the musical Dude and uh, a lot of cool things about that musical. And then we get into a really great uh, discussion on race uh, in 70s musicals versus today. And um, a lot of interesting threads in that discussion. And again, I'm excited to bring that discussion to you now. I have a to-do list, but all of my to-do lists are the old non-successful musicals mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah um dude was a show that mm-hmm. ran yeah i've heard of it a week yeah and i would love to do a concert version of mm. it because the show made no sense to me yeah no sense whatsoever right but rob and i have actually talked about doing a concert version of dude mm-hmm. um because the music is so good mm. who wrote that one um galt mm-hmm. did galt write that yes he did, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, his stuff is great. So. You know, Nell Carter, all uh, my favorite singers were in it. David Lasley. Yeah. Dolores Hall from Inner City. Mm. Alan Nichols, mm. who did their concert with us. Yeah. They were all in it. It was all of his people. And just incredible voices, incredible music. Yeah. But the show made not a shred of sense. <laughs> <clears throat> and that was the, the show that they read. Mm-hmm. configured the Broadway theater for. Oh, wow. Did you hear about that? No. They, they built the whole floor out from the stage. Oh, wow. And just put seating everywhere. Hmm. And they turned it into a jungle environment. Wow. Vines hanging in trees. And when you bought tickets, you didn't buy a mezzanine orchestra. You bought treetops, valleys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's so cool, though. It was. It's too bad they only utilized that for a week. But <laughs> right. But what happened was they the next show that came in utilized it. Oh, okay. It was Candide, the revival of Candide. Oh. And they used the same configuration that Dude had set up. Oh. 
Very so it did get used because yeah. Canadeep was pretty successful. Ah, uh, okay. Well, at least there's that. <clears throat> right. But still, that sounds that sounds really cool. I wish more broad. I mean, I guess Natasha Pierre built a little more of the theater out, um, but I wish more shows would would. Uh, it's just so costly. Yeah. Because they got a budget, putting it back into right. the budget, <laughs> so <laughs> they don't want to do that. Yeah. It was so much easier back in the 70s to get a show up. Right. That's why there was so much. And again, even back then, the off-Broadway scene was what was musically and cast album-wise exciting me. Mm -hmm. You know, you had shows like Salvation, mm -hmm. which, have you heard of that? No. <clears throat> Salvation, actually one of the songs was a top 40 hit for Ronnie Dyson from Hair. Oh, okay. If you let me make love to you, then why can't I touch you? Mm -hmm. It was from that show. Oh, okay. Um, but phenomenal music, and the album still holds up today, mm -hmm. listening to it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I really would like to to revisit some of these things musically. Yeah. Not necessarily do full productions, but just do concert versions of some right. of these shows. Right, no, that would be great. So great. I'm sure there is an audience of, yeah. you know, people who want to see the, these shows. And, yeah. Um, yeah, because there were a lot of uh, really cool ideas for shows in the 70s. And it would be cool And they got see. them up, whether yeah. they were a hit or not. Right. You know, some of them were not great. Yeah. <laughs> but they provided some great memories. I mean, Rock yeah. by Hamlet, mm -hmm. which Gower Champion directed mm. and choreographed. Horrible show. But my <laughs> God, there were some moments in it that were just breathtaking. Yeah. Meatloaf was in it. <laughs> Beverly D'Angelo was in it. She uh -huh. played Ophelia. Uh huh. And, you know, just the whole concept. Hamlet's family was black, Ophelia's was white and blonde. Mm. Just they just took risks. Yeah. What if we don't take anymore? Right. Especially these risks with race. I mean. Right. That. Right. Yeah. We still have an issue facing race in the American musical theater. Yeah. We still do. Um, was really noticeable too when Starlight Express came over, mm -hmm. because in London, Starlight, Rusty, and all the work cars yeah. were black actors. Mm. All the other cars, the 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 dining car, they were all white. Yeah. And it was a very strong statement. Right. When Rusty wanted to race with Pearl mm. because she was literally from the other side of the tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when they brought the show to Broadway, they wiped that all out. Mm. It was just like everybody was every color and every side and yeah. a lot of that was lost. Right. You're we not still saying, have trouble then you're not saying it. anything. Yeah. That's what I want to do. I mean, we all have our our niche mm -hmm. causes that right, we want to support. Right. And even the black theater from then was was not was afraid mm -hmm. to take the risk. Yeah. The one exception which I actually put about in here. Yeah. Um don't I ain't supposed to die a natural death. Right. Which was a big hit. Mm hmm It was actually opened at the Barrymore and they kicked it out for inner city. Oh. <laughs> and it moved to the ambassador. Uh huh. And it continued to run long after Inner City was over. Right. But it was written by Melvin Van Peebles. Right. Do you know who he is? I've, yeah, I know of the yeah. name. Yeah. Well, basically, he was a black indie filmmaker uh -huh. who did this really kind of X-rated black movie mm -hmm. that became a big hit. Mm -hmm. Sweet, sweet, backs, badass song. Mm -hmm. It was the first and probably the last time that a real militant black statement was made on Broadway. Mm. When you walked into the theater... No curtain, yeah. obviously. It was a tenement 
block, mm-hmm. very realistic looking. The band was situated on the roof, mm-hmm. roof of the tenements, and the audience comes in, you know, and it's it was trendy to go see black theater then. Yeah, the blacks went because they were finally happy to see themselves represented. Yeah, and the whites went because it was trendy and they'd heard a lot about it. Right. So, you have a very mixed audience. Yeah. House goes to half. The band starts playing the national anthem. Mm. The white people stood up. <laughs> the blacks didn't. Oh wow. Set the whole mood for the show right there. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was genius. Yeah. <laughs> that was just genius that he did that. Yeah. Because wow. he he created a divide right there. Yeah. And <clears throat> what followed did not let up. Mm. It just did not let up. And it was done so well. Yeah. But it was it was definitely in your face. And we just don't we don't address race like that anymore. Right. Well, we never we never really did. Mm-hmm. That was one of the exceptions. Right. You know, we get Amos Behaven. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what was the Shuffle Along? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, which the other show that addressed issues like that was Jelly's Last Jam. Mm-hmm. But again, it wasn't as blatant. Right. But they did, they did go there in a lot of areas. Yeah, I feel like we're not blatant anymore. No, no. Or as we're like afraid. That. We're trying to be too PC. Yeah. And we can't be mm-hmm. if we if we expect to address issues we can't be PC about it right did you see a, a strange loop at Playwrights I, I Horizons? did not um, Michael R. Jackson and I wanted to very bad yeah <laughs> well I hope it comes back I know I'm gonna get the album yeah it's it's really good he <clears throat> I mean I think he he addresses things in a blatant way um, more so than most people are doing right. I mean I think it's interesting that Eve Miriam mm-hmm. a white woman right was making stronger statements about the black experience than a lot of the black playwrights at the time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. But then she made a lot of statements about everything. <laughs> she was a feminist yeah. and proud of it. Um, she was very pro-gay mm-hmm. at a time when it was very wasn't very popular. Right. You know, and I think largely it was because her son was gay. Mm-hmm. And because I remember when we did the show in '81, at a rehearsal one day. She looks up and she goes, we never addressed the gay issue in this. I have to write something right now. <laughs> and she did. She wrote something to address the gay issue yeah. on the spot because she felt it needed to be added in. Right. But, you know, <clears throat> I admire that. Yeah. Get out there and say, well, we have to say something. Right. We can't just brush it under the carpet. Right, right. And now the final clip is from... Ella Rose Cherry's episode uh, from last season, season two, around this time last year. Uh, If you don't remember it, I suggest going back to review. It was a great episode. The formation of white and white Jewish identity in America and the racial history of America constructed through musical theater. And uh, we got into a discussion which I sadly had to cut out just for time. But um, I'm glad that I get the chance to uh, share it with you now as a discussion about um, whiteness, which we had been talking about, and in musical theater. And uh, it spun out into a great discussion about uh, telling stories and who gets to tell what story and what one's individual contribution to stories and discussions can be. I do think that to some extent, like, 
my reading of Scott's Bill Boys was that it was mm-hmm. trying to do that, to, but it was some degree of trying to reckon right. with minstrelsy. Like, I think that it's like, I didn't feel like they, like, I don't know, I did feel like they were, that they were trying to reckon with minstrelsy as a thing, which is, I think, appropriate for white men to reckon with. Yeah. I don't know how successful, like, again, there's the intention versus impact, right, right? right? And then, like, the impact of something if it upsets people or is hurtful to people, it doesn't really matter what you th- what you tried to do. Um, right. But that just sort of is what exists for me in that mm-hmm. sense of like thinking about those things. Um, I mean, I think like someone like Sukari writing a musical about Emmett Till. Yeah. Right. And like, what is that mm-hmm. century? Right. You know that that she and Troy are like writing a musical about this story yeah. that. You know that white people should not be writing that musical, right? right. And, and this is Sukari Jones, who was our guest uh, right. episode two, right? And so, <laughs> but that, but that thing for me of thinking about like, what are the ways in which there are things that I should be talking about, right. and what are the ways that I should be championing other things yeah. that are part of reframing who the U is and yeah. recentering who the U is, and then also. Um, like like reckoning with parts of that yeah. history. And so like the part that the lane that I feel like is very much my lane to stay in is right. this thing of like what is my responsibility yeah. as a artist and as a maker of th- musical theater and as a writer to the people whose backs my prolege is built on. Right. And so directly built on via musical theater. That's why it's like so wild to me, is because it's like so yeah. directly via like the the moment. And yeah. obviously, it's not the only moment or the only thing, but it's like so emblematic. Yeah. And it's why culture matters because there's all these things that we don't think about or aren't talking about that are as important, perhaps. Yeah. But the point is, is that that's the thing we remember a yeah. hundred years later, mm-hmm. is we remember this moment from a movie and a musical. Yeah. Um, and that's why it matters because right. we remember it and we're talking about it today and it didn't just and you know there's 17 million things that happened beneath the surface that mm-hmm. happened in the back room that nobody knew about or I've been writing like things that are focused on queerness or things that are focused on class or yeah. things that are focused on these elements of myself that I feel like an authority not authority right. is the wrong word but that I have enough of a voice towards that it's like this is what I have to say about yeah. these things but I think that like I'm still figuring out how to write about right. whiteness. Like, yeah. I'm still, like, trying to figure out how to write about... And, like, I kind of bake it into the stuff. Yeah. I have this play that I wrote that's not a musical that is about Gary Indiana, mm-hmm. my hometown, and about, yeah. like, race and class and, and like, how that, like... Right. And the, but it, like, it's, like, how I fit into it. Yeah. It's not, like, a detached or, like, yeah. I'm going to, like write from this other perspective it's like it's very much centered in me being like well what like I just try to think like what is my responsibility right like, what do I have to say yeah that matters right, right, right. <laughs> to this like I think a lot yeah. about that and I think that that is a thing that a lot of people just assume that anything that they think they have to say must matter because and, and there's a lot of right. encouragement of that to get people to write and I have a really complicated relationship to that this yeah. is like really far afield but yeah. I have a really complicated relationship to this idea that in order to get people to write mm-hmm. and to be writers and to think about their writing in a way that's like encouraging to them it's kind of like write what you know yeah. and also like what you have to say matters mm-hmm. and I sort of am like does 
Like, what, like, everybody has something to say that matters, I think. Yeah. But I think that it's not always what they assume it is, <laughs> yeah. right? And I also think that it's, like, there are a lot of people, like, people are taught differently in society. Yeah. So, like, some people are taught that everything they have to say <laughs> matters and is important and is relevant. Right. And, like, they should be allowed to say it without critique. And then yeah. there are other people who are taught that nothing they have to say matters. Right. And I think that, like, we can't, like, teach writing or teach, like, or give space to everybody as if those things are not happening at the same time. We have to acknowledge that, like, some people are, go through the world being told that everything they have to say is important and really valued and really, like, part of, they can be part of the conversation. And so they get very upset when it's, like well, what if this conversation isn't for you? Or what if this, your thought on this topic isn't important? Yeah. That's like, you're not supposed to say that to people, but I think that all the time. Yeah. Like you, and I think that of myself. Like right, the thing right. that I have to say, I may have a lot to say on certain things. Yeah. And it's like, well, but no, it doesn't matter what I have to say on it. I'm not the person who should be given a platform to talk about right, it. Right, right. And I think like talking about this conversation, I'm very sensitive to that. I'm really trying to like think about what do I have to say about this Mm-hmm. That is a thing that I should be saying, right? About it. Or it needs to be said, or further, like right. really furthers like a conversation that needs right. to happen, right? And that isn't just taking space away from somebody else who has something else to say about it. Yeah, that is probably more important. Yeah, because when we're talking about like race and musical theater and the history of that, there's a lot of people who have things to say mm-hmm. that are more important and relevant in a lot of ways in certain areas than what I have to say about it. Yeah. Which is not like a, I don't know anything important. It's not a devaluing of what right, I say. It's right. just a recognition that that is true and that's yeah. okay. And we can learn from other people yeah. and listen to other people. and But yeah. it's also a really like empowering recognition to be like, but that doesn't mean that there's nothing that I have to right. say about it. It's, it's just not like it's nothing. that. It's yeah. like there is something that is important for me to contribute to this conversation. And my work, my responsibility is to say, what is that? How Mm -hmm. do I talk about it in a way that's responsible? And how do I talk about it in a way that that is uh, contributing instead of just taking space away? Right. And how to, yeah. yeah. And I think that can be thought of like across the board, whether you're a writer, whether you're an audience member, whether you're in any way in any way part of musical theater or life or life, <laughs> like, right? yeah, in and any life. context, yeah, yeah, like um, which uh, is something, yeah, it's something everyone can think about right. and reckon reckon with, and yeah, recognizing the value of your unique contribution is really great. Like it's mm-hmm. really empowering versus deciding that everything is your contribution. Like, everything is nobody's unique contribution, right? right? Like, everybody has their own unique contribution. And being able to say that this is mine, Mm -hmm. as opposed to just being like, I am entitled or have the right or ought to be able to say everything. Yeah. And that's not censorship, right? Like, no, I'm not saying that people should be arrested or thrown in jail for any of it, right? Right. People are like, oh, it's censorship. It's not censorship. Censorship is like, if you say that, you're gonna get thrown in jail. No, say whatever you want, but, like, you yeah. are allowed to then be critiqued on it. Right. And I'm saying, like, like if you are contributing to a conversation in a way that other people yeah. find not valuable. Right. Yeah, this is not, like, legal or illegal. Yeah. It's, 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 like, like, a, value, it's like yeah. a moral right. or value 
um, right. looking way to look at yourself and how you participate right. in the world. <laughs> I'm not violating anybody's First Amendment right to be like, yeah. I don't think you should talk about that. I'm not saying that you should be arrested for talking about it. I'm just saying that I personally right. would like to hear somebody else talk about that. Yeah. And so then I think about what I personally would like to hear somebody else talk about instead of me yeah. <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. And now uh, I get to do a why is this so good section that I've always wanted to do. You may remember from the season two finale episode that I said that if I were to do a why is this so good, I would do Telephone Wire from Fun Home. And I thought I would take this opportunity uh, to do that. Um, I think that Fun Home is a masterpiece and... I think that Telephone Wire is a little masterpiece within that masterpiece, and I'm really excited to get to talk about it. We can look at this song as the climax of the show. Uh, Fun Home is about uh, Alison Bechtel. It's based on her uh, uh, graphic novel, Fun Home, uh, and it's about her... uh, kind of coming out at the same time realizing her dad is gay and um, she brings her then girlfriend home, Joan, uh, to visit her family's house uh, on a break from college. And in, in that time, she goes on this car ride with her father and she wants to bring up the fact that, um, you know, they are both gay and what is that what does that mean for them and she can't bring bring up that conversation or it's it's difficult to bring that up um and it actually is the last night that she has with him because she then goes back to school and he kills himself um by walking in front of a truck and there's so much that she's trying to Uh, figure out about that moment she had with him in the car and this whole story is told from the point of view of a 43 year old Allison looking back at that time at various moments in her life but specifically for this song it's about uh, that that moment that time where it was her last night with him and uh, I just listened to an interview that uh, writers Lisa Crone and Janine Tesori did back uh, when Fun Home was on Broadway and back uh, in 2015. And they said that they were looking for a reason for the show to be told right now, that dramatic question of why, why now, why right now. And they realized that, uh, the story is being told from the point of view of a 43-year-old Allison, which is the same age her her father was when he died. So there's that connection as well. And what's really cool in the show, uh, we talked about this also in the season two finale. Um, someone mentioned that um, the scene is playing out and med- what's known as medium Allison, college, college age Allison is playing the scene with her father and they're going to get in the car but then it's the 43 year old older Allison who gets in the car with him and actually plays the scene um because it's really about 
her memory of the scene, not the actual scene itself, and the need to investigate that mo- this moment and kind of excavate it and look back on it as, th- and because it is, this is the reason sh- there's that she's telling the story right now. And there's all kinds of dramatic questions that she's bringing up here, specifically um, the the questions she brings up in the beginning of the show. Are we are we exactly alike? Are we nothing alike? What is what is our connection? And um, that's what this song is kind of about is her um, trying to figure that out from this moment. And um, the idea of telephone wire itself, if you have driven around in the suburbs or farther out from the suburbs and more of the country. Um, I don't know, when I was a kid, I would always look out the window and look at the telephone wire going by. And it was just, it was kind of mesmerizing to watch it. Just, you know, as they say in the song, thread the sky, it, it just moves, it's continuous, and it's, it's a line of communication. And I think um, that the writers are using that metaphor really beautifully here to um, talk about what's connecting us. And a little aside that I wanted to add, which I just is my I, I think is super cool. There's that story about Alexander Graham Bell when he made the first telephone call, and he said, "Mr. Watson, come here. I need you." This is uh, the story is that this is the first tele- telephone call. This is the first lines that are said over the phone. And uh, this was the basis for a really great play that I loved called The Curious Case of the Watson Intelligence, which was a Pulitzer finalist in 2014 for drama. And I think that the line, that line, Mr. Watson, come here, I need you, is kind of disguised in Fun Home. And it's um, when Allison, small Allison sings, Daddy, come here, I need you. Uh, Okay, I need you. Daddy, hey, Daddy, come here, okay, I need you. What are you doing, I said, come here. You need to do what I tell you to do. Listen to me. Daddy, come here. Hey, right here, right now, you're making me mad. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. It's so similar to that line. And um, biographically, that first play, The Curious Case of the Watson Intelligence, was written by Madeline George. And uh, Fun Home is written, co-written by Lisa Crone. Um, They're married. And both pieces were Pulitzer finalists in 2014. So just a little bit of connection there for this come here, I need you line, um, which I just personally think is is just a really cool connection. The connection theme is very present in this idea of telephone wire that is being threaded through the sky. And Allison is watching it go by and the idea of like, I have to I have to bring up this conversation. And if you've ever had a conversation you had to kind of, that you've wanted to bring up, that um, it feels like, how do I start this? It's so awkward that the song also kind of gets at that feeling too, where it's like, there's no, there's no easy way into this. It's not gonna flow. I have to bring this up somehow. Um, And she knows she has to because 
from a perspective of looking back, it's their last night together. So I think a good way to talk about this song is to talk about those layers of time which inform the lyrics. Um, There's a lot of different perspectives of time working together in this song. Um, I mean, we're first, as the lyric starts, we're in the moment. She's in the car. She's looking out the window. Telephone wire, run and run. Telephone wire, sundown on the creek. Telephone wire, run and run. Telephone wire, sundown on the creek. Partly frozen, partly flowing Must be windy, trees are bending Junction 50, field needs mowing Feels like the car is floating She's looking at what's there right now in the moment But because we know it's coming from older Allison We know it's also in her memory That this is not actually happening in completely in the moment in time um, And when she gets to the say something, talk to him um, that can be coming from herself in the moment. She's telling herself, she's telling herself in the moment to say something, talk to him at the light. Or she's telling her younger self, she's looking at the scene from later saying, telling herself to say something, talk to him. So there's those two layers going on. Say something, talk to him. Say something, anything. Hey, yeah. where do you want to go? There are these different sections for the two of them. It, we go into Bruce, and he has, the, he has uh, some sections in there that are kind of feel out of time also. But the first one, they're kind of just talking about a bar. But the music is this different music from what we've been hearing previously. Um, it's kind of a cha- it's like a chamber chamber music, like a little string quartet or something that's he's thinking about something from the past. Um, he's talking about this bar that's uh, that he knows that could be fun. What's this bar? What memories does he have from this bar? Um, why is he talking about it in this way now? I know a bar that's kind of hidden away. CD club for folks like, you know, could be fun. But dad, I'm not 21. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, So that kind of comes in, but then it goes back to the telephone wire um, hook, the the verse and um you know it's it's more of that same like I what she's seeing out the window and um and then she has the I go back to school tomorrow which again uh with the say something talk to him is another kind of like it could be in the moment like I want to talk to him because I'm you know I'm going back to school tomorrow or coming from older Allison where it's you know you're gonna go back to school tomorrow and that's it this is the last time say something talk to him um again working on 
two different two different levels. Telephone wire, long black line. Telephone wire, finely threaded sky. There's the pond where I went wading. There's a sign for Sugar Valley. On the mountain, light is fading. I go back to school tomorrow. Say something, talk to him. Say something, anything. At the light, at the light, at the light, at the light. At the light, at the light, at the light, at the light. Doesn't matter what you say. Just make the fear in his eyes go away. And then again, we get a Bruce section, which, um is again this out of time string quartet um, and now we're really in his memory now we're looking back into the past from this moment um, and he's talking about a boy in college Norris Jones um, where is he now where is he in the present so it's like he's thinking of him now back then but now where is he now and then another memory 14 years old um, you know in a barn and um with the boys and you know knowing then that he was he was different from them there was a boy in college my first year there norris jones he had black wavy hair norris jones where is he now? Fourteen years old In Swenson's barn It was cold Lots of boys messed around, you know For them it was a game they outgrew But I always knew And then that sets up Um this you know uh, this new section for Allison the dad me too section which um takes on another like another musical idea entirely it's like very fast it's like oh my gosh like like this is this is my way in like this is it dad me too since like five I guess I prefer to wear boy shirts and pants I felt absurd in a dress I really tried to deny my Dad. Norris Jones. Dad. This is kind of the moment she wants with him to connect over this, but it's it's not working because he's still in this memory. He's still in a different he's in a different time. Um and so like he's in the past, she's here in the present, but also in the future. It's like it's all these times at once. It's like past, present, future, all in this one moment, um, which makes it, you know, feel so, um, you know, theatrical and, and cool and um, and emotional. And um, and then all of a sudden, snap, he's back in the present time, but he's he's not with her. He's talking about you know something else. He's talking about a project. Hey, did I mention that new project I've taken on? Oh, you've seen it out. That old house out on Route 150? Oh, it's been standing out there empty 40, 50 years. 
And it's kind of like what I love about these musical sections is that it's kind of like they all have their separate music. Like there's there's music that the other one can't touch. Um, Bruce's sections and his memory and but or maybe they can maybe she can get through to him there like there's is there an overlap she's trying to get in or they or they separate and I think the music does an incredible job of conveying that these these maybe are separate these maybe are places that the other one can't connect with they can't touch Um, so then we get to the final telephone wire section which is the moment where it really becomes future older Allison looking back at this moment because she says stop too fast make this not the past this car ride and talking about it out of time from the from the her 43 year old self looking back at it so then we really feel like this is actually not we're not in we're not in the present now we're not in this moment we're in you know the point of view of older Allison from when this particular story is being told and we're looking back at it and we're seeing it completely from her eyes and why it's it's so heartbreaking and important that this conversation happened to her but that it it didn't actually happen telephone wire stop too fast telephone wire make this not the past this call earlier than I thought. Are you coming in? Telephone wire. That was our last night. And uh, I do want to add also for our Something Wonderful section that um, there's a lot of great theater performances going on online right now. It's it's kind of exciting, even with all the technical glitches, when it works, when it doesn't work, it kind of feels like we're in the early days of television again with, uh, with this live theater, um, you know, and the technology and kind of not knowing exactly what we're doing with it yet, but it's sort of fun. Um, I enjoyed the Sondheim uh, 90th birthday celebration, even though it started an hour late. Um, I think it's really cool that we get to see these performers um, just get a song to sing and what they do with the kind of self-tape format. Um it's kind of exciting. Um, also, not as talked about, but Jason Robert Brown did a concert the following day, which was also really amazing. And uh, especially uh, Ariana Grande singing Still Hurting, which is a song we've talked about on this show way back in season one for Why Is This So Good. Um, she did 
an amazing job with that on and in that concert um so i recommend that as well and uh thank you all so much for listening to this special episode of scene to song you can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater or if you'd like to be a podcast guest Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by taking a moment to rate it on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at scene song and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode. <laughs>